my observation is that um, looking at the history of administrative detention is different to the uh, liberal idea of a social contract. The social contract is a thought experiment. Uh, it's where legitimacy comes from. But if you look at the history of it, yeah, that's a bit different to how how things work and you come up with quite different conclusions about what's right and wrong, how things should be done. So that's what I would, that's how I would locate and place her argument. Um, I wish we'd had time to have a longer chat with her about that. But uh, that's an example of the sort of thing we can look forward to in the rest of the term. And it's now time for me to share my screen. Uh, it's on the other screen. Can you all see that screen? Is that, are the PowerPoints coming up now? Hello. Alyssa, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. So you're all typing, okay. So you can see, whoops, stop that. Type the email. Here we are, the slides. Okay. I'm at the conclusions. Let me go back to the start. And um, 20 past. So I'll try to get through this in 40 minutes. And then we can uh, go to the discussion questions, break out into little groups, um, and talk about the discussion questions. So today we're talking about both republicanism and liberalism and their uh, models of democracy that developed from these two uh, mostly contrary traditions, even if they have lots of overlap as well. Um, I draw fairly heavily on David Held, but bring in uh, Charles Tilley as an alternative to Held. Um, I can point out that David Hell is known as a cosmopolitan liberal um, and his reading of the history of thought about democracy is shaped by the sort of arguments he makes. Charles Tilley is more critical, more of an, a historical perspective on how things work, but I'll explain what that means as we go through. So first up, we've got uh, this is my uh, overview for the lecture. So we start in 1650. Uh, many of you will know of that as the, the date of the Treaty of Westphalia, when uh, nation states formally recognized each other in Europe. But since that time, modern thinkers have struggled with this tension between individual liberties and governing the common good. 
And there are several aspects to this tension, uh, often summed up by liberalism versus democracy. The liberty of the individual versus the demos, which is a people, a collective. And this um, tension between collective duties and individual rights. You also have a tension from the same period between faith and rationality, where faith is a collective practice. You have a, um, a church community, a dharma, uh, a group of people all practicing together, whereas rationality is internal and individual analysis and argument. So from 1650, we have this uh, separation of church from the state. Church is part and religion is a private concern, whereas government rationality is a public concern. The feminists have been very interested in this uh, contrast where private life is uh, emotional, feminine, domestic. Public life is rational, masculine, uh, and uh, about government. David Held emphasizes the a, a further contrast that's developed out of from this time uh, between versus forms of government that offer people the opportunity to develop themselves, find, discover their own potential and learn how to be better people. Uh, the protective approach is, has a, a more static picture of human nature, that the people we were in the school playground in our early teens, that is what we are like all our lives, that there are characteristics about people that are just set. That's who you are. Whereas the developmental idea is that people live and learn and that you think differently in different periods of your life and your experiences and so on shape you and change you. There's a different assumptions about psychology and about human nature and the relationship between human nature and our social, cultural, historical settings. Uh, constructivism, which some of you may know about in sociology or in international relations, in this context, it's a matter of rejecting the social contract thought experiment, which is uh, very central. It's it's what journalists talk about when they when politicians make promises before an election, we vote for them, and then the journalists hold them to account. Uh, the contract between the rulers and the ruled, between the politicians and the voters. This social contract idea is, is uh, very strong in our community. The constructivists reject this as uh, far too abstract, far too divorced from how things actually develop. And so, uh, it, it, and you can see here, I'm going, starting in 1650 and coming through. So I'm clearly pointing out the, the importance of constructivism. 
thinking about the way warfare, capitalism, the welfare state develops at the same time as mercantile colonialism and then later um, uh, industrial colonialism. Um, it wasn't just a matter of trading, it also became a matter of plantations and controlling markets on a mass scale. Imperialism after 1800s became um, much more complicated out in the, in the colonies. And this affected the nature of nation states and the, and the sorts of democracies that developed. And we'll get back to that. So starting with Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes uh, was a uh, particularly innovative and original thinker. He also wrote in Latin and was widely uh, influential over all of um, Europe. Uh, this, this book, The Le Leviathan, um, A Matter of Form and Power of a Commonwealth, Ecclesiastical and Civil, was written just after the end of the English Civil War uh, and the execution of Charles I just at the beginning of Oliver Cromwell's Republican Commonwealth. And there was no king for uh, 30 years, I think. The, uh, the basic idea, um, well, start off with uh, this famous quote. Um, if there's no state, there's, there's no place for industry, Everything is uncertain. There's no culture, uh, no navigation, no um, commodities, no importing, no building, no transport, no knowledge, no account of time, no art, no letters, no society. And there's continual fear and danger of violent death. The life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short pretty dismal picture of what life can be like without a nation state. And this was written after 30 years of civil war. Everybody knew exactly what he was talking about, how precarious life is when there's no law and order. This famous book, The Leviathan, is about law and order is the first priority. Without law and order, Without a state, nothing else is possible. He starts from an assumption that all people are equal. A child could pick up a gun and shoot anybody. We all have the same risk of harm from other people. Second, all people have a rational interest in a sovereign authority, a state that is sufficiently powerful to inspire or command obedience and this is what the leviathan is it's a mythical monster from the bible and it, it's so powerful that everyone obeys you can then drive through the intersection at the green lights knowing that other people will stop at those red lights we can rely on order prevailing and can go about our business 
because if you drive against a red light, you will be caught and face serious consequences. And this, con this consequences inspires respect and we follow the law. So consequently, he uh, disagreed with the Bible. The powers that be are not ordained by God. The powers that be are ordained by everybody's rational interest in security. And this was, this was revolutionary. This was revolutionary liberalism, breaking against the ordained um, authority of uh, divine rule, divine rule. This led him to propose a social contract as a thought experiment, that everybody contracts with everyone else to construct an, a sovereign authority. We all have a rational interest in agreeing with each other to obey that authority and to make that authority sufficiently powerful that we can all rely that everyone else will, will follow the law. So we can all pay our taxes knowing that everybody else pays their taxes. There's no cheating going on. There's no fudging because the sovereign authority is so powerful, it can ensure obedience. It's a very clear, logical argument based on acceptable assumptions about human nature and about um, our equality of uh, harm and, and threat and risk. John Locke, 30 years later, came up with the first and most powerful criticism of this social contract. And Locke is known as the uh, founder of liberalism. So many people will start with Locke rather than Hobbes. But David Held, I, I agree, he points out that Hobbes was the more logical, rigorous and innovative thinker. So he thought of the he came up with the idea of a social contract. But Locke argued or pointed out, we create this sovereign authority. What's to stop that sovereign authority becoming a tyrant? Who guards the guards, which is Plato's question. Um, he came up with this criticism of Hobbes just after the, the ending of the, of the Republican period the restoration, you know, the uh, glorious revolution of 1688 that restored the monarchy, the House of Lords, uh, the Church of England, and uh, ensconced a separation of powers between these um, houses and authorities. Uh, Montesquieu later um, reflected extensively on this separation of powers, but it does largely come from this glorious revolution and Locke's reflections on it. So Locke, and this is, this is where the liberalism, beyond rationality, the liberalism here comes with the idea that the state itself is a greater threat to our liberties than other people. And so he suggested that the social contract shouldn't be everybody contracting with everyone else. 
the contract should be between we the people and the rulers, between the rulers and the ruled. This means that the sovereign is a party to the contract rather than an outcome of the contract. Very uh, influential and persuasive alternative form of contract to Hobbes's one. So on this idea of a social contract, rulers must be accountable to citizens. Uh, and this accountability, uh, the idea is to ensure that the ruler cannot take your private property arbitrarily. That the social contract would uphold citizens' own liberty. And that owning property is the strongest guarantee for ensuring our liberty. So we, the people, and our fundamental rights to life, liberty, and property were very influential, very influential on the uh, Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution. And we can hear echoes of this every day in every election. The promise politicians make promises before an election. We vote for them and then journalists hold them to account for those promises and compare what they do against what they promised to do. So this promise is like a contract with the voters, give them their mandate to vote. So we're talking about the 1680s, but this is a, a theory that's very much amongst us today. It, it influences everybody's thinking. Um, so however old it is, it's still alive and living with us. Uh, turning now to David Held's contrast between developmental republicanism uh, and uh, the older protective republicanism. This, this idea of the republic, the common good, the res publica is Latin, it means the things we have in common, the public things together, translated, often translated as the commonwealth. So the conservative idea uh, dates from the Roman uh, period before the emperor, emperors, after Greece and before Julius Caesar, turn to imperialism. The Senate governed Rome and this Republican period. Later in Europe, it was the, the Roman idea of Republicanism that was emulated and the the commonality that the people was a, was a matter of the nation, the church, the family, and law and order, rather than um, demos and the mob. The collective they were interested in was the whole nation. Developmental republicanism um, is, uh, well, it's more progressive. It thinks about uh, the people rather than, it's a little bit different to the nation. It's less interested in war and uh, national pride uh, and, and a duty to defend your nation. It's more about uh, people's everyday lives, um, opportunities to, to make an income, uh, to good family life, uh, you know, more social welfare sorts of ideas of, that we all have in common. The emphasis on civil society, the uh, um, 
political parties, uh, church groups, uh, trade unions, uh, choirs, theatres, things that people do together. Cooperatives, John Stuart Mill, we talk about it in a minute. In a minute. I was very strongly emphasised the importance of cooperatives. And in the radical, more recent versions of developmental republicanism, there's an emphasis on protest movements and revolutions as a collective action to achieve social justice. So the, the common ground between these radicals and conservatives is collective action. They just emphasise different collectives but it's collective action versus liberalism and individual rationality. So some of the key thinkers that are important in this radical form of uh, developmental republicanism uh, includes uh, Niccolò Machiavelli, uh, writing in Italian in uh, the early 1500s. Um, besides the prince, which is the book cover at the bottom, or The Discourses, much longer book. Uh, he also has another book on the art of war. And in The Art of War, he argued that mercenaries, are it's, it's hopeless, that they will turn on the losing side and support the winning side. Whoever They'll fight for whoever is going to pay them. Losers never pay. Winners, or only the winners who pay. Which means that if, if you go out and hire mercenaries, there's no guarantee you're going to win. If they turn on you, you've had it. By contrast, if you rely instead on your own citizens as soldiers, they will fight to the death to defend their family. They're not in it for the money. They're in it for their protecting their own uh, city, their own family. And such soldiers are entitled to say on whether or not the city goes to war. So this was a fundamentally democratic emphasis on the soldier-citizen, and it comes from Machiavelli. Other aspects of Machiavelli were very influential in Elizabethan England, uh, when Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe was, were writing their plays. The House of Cards is um, deeply Machiavellian, quite literally based on Christopher Marlowe's idea of um, speaking, the character stops uh, speaking to other characters in the play and speaks directly to the audience, which happens in House of Cards. That comes straight out of Christopher Marlowe emulating the tone in The Prince, especially, which is, speaks directly to the people rather than to other elites. Um, Machiavelli was very influential in the US Constitution. The citizens' right to bear arms comes from uh, the art of war. Uh, and the Second Amendment, in the, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, we've all heard about the citizens' right to bear arms. In the 1930s, um, the communist Antonio Gramsci that um, Mussolini put in prison Gramsci was plotting a coup. a coup. He was a Leninist. He argued that the prince was written in Italian, not Latin, that its readership was ordinary people, not other uh, leaders, and that he was teaching ordinary people about the realities of power. 
that the elites don't need these lessons, that if you've grown up in a wealthy family, if you are destined to inherit great wealth and great power, then you, it, you absorb it in your growing up. Um, whereas ordinary people need books like this to make them wise to the world, to understand how politics really works. So Gramsci argued that Machiavelli's book was deeply, intrinsically revolutionary because it, it upset the, the established order of, of power in, in the world. This is a developmental Republican idea in favour of citizenship and rights of citizenship for ordinary people. Moving on, um, Held has very little to say about um, Gramsci, but a lot more to say about Rousseau. Um, Rousseau had a third take, influential reinterpretation of the social contract. Uh, very critical of representation. Very strongly uh, bringing back Athenian democracy, Athenian republicanism. It's a developmental idea altogether rather than the protective version from the Roman uh, Republic. So he called for active participation of citizens governing themselves directly. That representative democracy is temporary dictatorship by representatives. That democracy means each of us participating in the decisions, making the decisions that affect us. Um, is probably most famous today for this contrast between the general will and the common good versus the will of all as an aggregation of preferences. Um, now, Jan van der Muller argues that Trump has been effectively drawing on this will of all. I am the innate representative of the people. I speak like the people. I think like the people. Um, I am America. And if these election revolt results are wrong, they've added things up wrongly, then obviously they're corrupt and wrong because I am the truth. I am uh, the genuine, authentic leader. Um, I represent the general will versus a mere tallying up of um, aggregating preferences here and there. Um, that's a false, uh, inadequate representation of, of what people think. Now, Muller argues that all populists take this Rousseauian general will and disregard the mere adding up of um, different preferences as if society is merely a congerie, merely a heap, a pile of different people. That society has a will and that it's a, a um, organic whole. It should be pointed out that Jean-Jacques Rousseau was thinking about Geneva, pre-industrial small town, where it's possible to emulate Athens. But um, his critique of liberalism, his critique of liberal procedures, 
parliamentary bourgeois democracy, which is what um, Lenin especially talked about in the state of his pamphlet, The State of Revolution. But Marx and Engels were also very influenced by Rousseau. When Marx wrote journalism about the Paris Commune and sent it off to a newspaper in New York, the way he was reporting this uprising in Paris when the Bismarck invaded this little, the left bank in the centre of Paris set up this no-go zone. They had furniture on the streets, they blocked off the area, the German soldiers were not allowed in, and this little municipality, commune, local government, uh, set up their own government, the government themselves, directly. Uh, so this, this uh, Paris commune is one of the few places where Marx actually imagines what communism might be done. Um, communism initially was translated as municipal socialism, the social common good of the local governments, the municipality. Because commune is, is the German word for local government in the common good uh, on this Rousseauian idea of the general will. The Soviet uh, is a, um, a Russian term for the local council, the municipality. And um, the Soviets, they set up these little collectives within, um, amongst troops of soldiers in the, in the docks, in army bases, as well as local government. So the, the um, United Soviet Socialist Republic was a, this bottom-up municipal socialism building up. This was the image of communism and it drew heavily on Rousseau's contrast between the general will and the mere procedures for aggregating preferences based on participation, participatory democracy. And again, we come back to this when we look at uh, participatory democracy in the 1960s. Um, watching the time here, Jeremy Bentham, uh, early 1800s, very influential in early Australia, deeply influential on Macarth, on um, Lachlan Macquarie, granting um, uh, letters of leave to the emancipists. And best known today for the economics, the economics of utility, um, as a means of aggregating preferences and maximizing the surplus of benefits over costs. Cost-benefit analysis comes from Bentham. But we're more interested in his thinking about democracy. He, rep he defended representative democracy as the only practical way of organizing democracy in modern states. Early 1800s, he was a defender of the United States, liberal philosopher in, in Britain, opposed to the aristocracy and the monarchy, and promoting uh, democracy according to the rule of law. He argued that voting protects citizens from bad government, that we can vote and the majority will choose one government, one party as the government, and the uh, opposition can stay there. And if, if they, the majority, the government that has a majority of the votes turns out to be a bad government, 
then we can all change our mind and vote for the alternative government in waiting, the opposition. And in this way, empowering everyone with the vote means that we get the least bad governments. It protects us. It, it can only be bad government for so long before we choose the alternative. I, more recently, Michel Foucault argued that the form of liberalism that, that Bentham advocated was deeply and intrinsically controlling about people. Um, he had a lot to say about um, the isolation and the individuation of people, separating everybody out from their community and from their friends and from anyone they know, and isolating people in a prison was the only way to inf uh, reform people, make them into, turn them from convicted criminals and turn them into good citizens. But this isolation and individuation of people under liberalism uh, is, well, it's big brother, panopticon, watching everything that you do. It's intrinsic to liberalism, according to Foucault. But uh, so, that, so uh, Bentham is emphasizing the individual that argues that the will of each of us as a procedure protects us from bad governments. So he's, he's completely opposed to Rousseau. He's ad, advocating the aggregating of preferences and adding it all up uh, in, in order to protect us from bad governments. So it's not aiming for good government, it's just minimizing how bad government can be. John Stuart Mill, um, known as the, as the father of social liberalism, where Bentham is much more about protective uh, democracy. Uh, this social liberalism saw John Stuart Mill advocate uh, possibilities for developing citizens. That, um, if people have the right to vote, then they have a duty to become informed about uh, politics, to take your responsibility seriously, to work out who, who you are choosing between, what they are offering, and how viable or important the, the contending policies are. He also, for similar reasons, advocated cooperatives, and so we have um, many of the mutual societies for finance have been uh, corporatized and privatized, but the AMP, the Colonial Mutual, um, many of the um, first apartment blocks were built by cooperatives. This was uh, uh, far more pervasive than you might realize. Collective action uh, amongst the, within uh, the finance world, um, in construction, as well as uh, there were a lot of cooperatives in the dairy industry. The early big companies we buy milk from are now privatized and corporatized, but they started out as cooperatives owned by the dairy farmers together to make milk or cheese. Um, John Stuart Mill was one of the first people to argue for universal education. Um, probably uh, strongly influenced by his wife, 
who was a, a very important steadying figure. He, John Stuart Mill was known as a sufferer of depression. Um, his wife uh, kept him on a level field and, um, and contributed enormously and would probably had a central role in his arguments in favour of female suffrage, uh, which if women get the right to vote, this leads to universal suffrage, not just male suffrage, but universal. He um, worried though, he took up the, he remained a liberal rather than a socialist in the extent that he worried about the mob having to vote. If everybody can vote, then they may uh, choose socialist parties that will take property away from the rich and redistribute it to the poor. And this will undermine um, not only prosperity, but civilization more generally. So he proposed plural voting, uh, that everyone gets one vote, foremen get two votes, and university graduates get three votes on the idea that only the rich went to university. As it turns out, and this is C.B. McPherson's argument, plural voting was completely ignored, never had any uh, take up at all. But what has actually happened is that parties have become the, the mechanism for mediating this tension between everybody having the vote and maintaining prosperity and uh, high culture that parties have to win majority support, but they also have to attract uh, donations from the rich. Um, and coming up, coming up through the ranks within the party, people learn how to deal with this tension. That has, in effect, been the way of, of dealing with John Stuart Mill's anxiety about uh, universal suffrage. And if you're interested in that, looking into that, you can look at uh, one of the last chapters, I think the second last chapter in C.B. McPherson's book, The Life and Times of Liberal Democracy. Moving on to um, Charles Tilley, a much more recent thinker. He uh, was... Um, a more conventional social science up until 2000 when he retired and at retirement he went back through all of his books and completely rewrote all his thinking in terms of constructivism quite a project um, he rejects the idealism of a social contract and analyzes the historical emergence of european states from the 1650s and argues that they started out as protection rackets. The nation state was one ginormous uh, protection racket. So the, the, the kings were basically gangsters, clan leaders, warlords. Um, they would threaten and exploit the population with protection, as in do come and fight for my war, otherwise um, you will suffer harm, and that harm will come from me. And this is exactly what the, the gangs do to a shopkeeper. If you pay us protection or your windows are going to be broken or you're going to suffer all sorts of harm from me. So if you pay me, I will protect you 
from me. This is <laughs> protection racket, as they're known. So he argued that the nation states, as we know them today, emerged from kings waging wars with other kings in nearby territories. Uh, and as they developed standing armies, they needed more and more taxation to fund these soldiers, professional soldiers. And in turn, they needed to make sure that the people paying their taxes were earning more so that they could afford the taxes. So they turned around to start to promote capitalism or mercantile colonialism. This led to um, the uh, British, uh, what's it called, the company in, in, in India or the, the Dutch company that ran the, uh, the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia. earning huge amounts of money from the slave trade and from uh, trade with the colonies and the, and the imperial center meant that they were earning a lot more money, that they could pay their taxes and that the kings could set up these permanent armed forces. And in turn, each nation state recognized that the other nation state had a monopoly over the official uh, use of violence within that territory which is Weber's definition of the nation state, a monopoly of violence over a defined population within a set territory. But the point is that this gradually emerging legitimacy came from international relations rather than from a thought experiment. In his essay about democracy is like a lake, he places the construction of democracy as a human invention. It's something midway between the idealism of the thought experiments and a more path-dependent pessimism. This path-dependency is um, an idea that yeah, for example, there's path dependency about why is there no democracy in the Middle East? It's because of Islam or it's because of international interference in local politics in order to assure access to oil. So he, he comes up with these three uh, metaphors for thinking about uh, the various models of democracy. So on the idealist picture, which is closest to liberalism, Democracy is like a garden. If you're skilled enough, then elites can construct it anywhere. And if we bring down the old regime and we can undertake a transition to, to democracy, then this is possible anywhere as long as you are skilled enough. Path dependency assumes that democracy is, is like an oil field. If the preconditions were laid down long ago, then democracy is possible, if not tough luck. Um, a, 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 an example of this um, argument, the author's name escapes me for the moment, but um, in Scandinavia and um, remote, Switzerland, remote areas in Europe, uh, the small farmers were the people who became 
small business people and the middle class in a democratic regime in modern society. With industrialization, these small farmers were very important to the future of democracy. But in the wide open plains of Prussia and Russia, the aristocrats had many serfs and they were the forerunners to fascist regimes, totalitarian regimes in the, past, in, in the modern era. Um, this is an example of this sort of long-term preconditions. If they exist, the democracy is possible. If they are absent, tough luck. You're not going, democracy is not going to come about. So the constructivist position midway between these two optimistic and pessimistic uh, alternatives accepts that sometimes democracy is, to, is just the, the old preconditions means it's possible. So you have a lot of uh, democracy in Scandinavia and Switzerland, these small isolated valleys and dairy farmers, small farmers, just like you know, a landslide can block a river or there's low point in the landscape and, and, and the lake just appears with no effort from agents of change or expert elites. On the other hand, sometimes people can work together and create a, a, a lake that never existed before, like the, the lake um, Burley Griffin in the centre of Canberra. Create a dam, the river, and you create this lake in some times and places, but not everywhere and not anywhere or any time. Um, it depends on the times and circumstances where it can be possible. He adds here that democracy, constructing a democracy is not like building a mansion. A few people, a few experts build it. It's a longer term collective process. It's much more like building a city over time. Generations of people, large numbers of people accumulate uh, democracy rather than um, experts building this, this beautiful mansion in, in short order. So we've looked at um, faith versus rationality, the church versus state, the rational interest in security replacing the divine right of kings. We've looked at uh, Locke's idea of the social uh, contract. Oh, you know, Hobbes' idea that, that um, good government is an outcome of a social contract versus Locke's idea that the social contract should be between the ruler and the ruled, that the government should be a party to the social contract and not an outcome of the social contract. We've looked at collective duties versus individual rights, the republics rest on soldiers, citizens, and the principalities rely uh, advisedly, or advised to rely on their soldier citizens rather than mercenaries, professional soldiers. That active participation in shaping the general will and the common good is very important. That liberal democracy tends to be passive and representative rather than active and participatory. Um, voting for representatives empowers citizens to protect themselves and vote out bad government. 
uh, voting develops citizens' full potential, along with cooperatives, universal education, universal suffrage and social welfare. So that's uh, protection versus development. And then finally, we have the constructivist approach that regards sovereignty as having started out as a protection racket, that it's a matter of history and political economy, the formation of government and law and order, is a matter of history and political economy rather than ideals of liberty, equality and community or the nation. So democracy is like a lake or a city rather than a garden or a building or an oil field. So that's a, a very quick survey of Republican and liberal uh, ideas, traditions of democracy. Next week, we'll move on to the more modern idea, 20th century ideas of social democracy as an alternative to liberal democracy. But for now, uh, stop sharing these lecture slides. And now I will instead share the... Um, The unit website. If we go to um, weekly topics, traditional schools of thought, and here we have Republican and liberal democracy. I just zoom in on this. You can see that there are three questions. Um, have a look at those three questions right now. Break you into um, breakout groups. Breakout rooms. And well, I have three rooms. Assign automatically. And you just, the machine, the Zoom apparatus will just allocate you automatically. And you have one of these three questions. Um, I hope you can still see them. If you can't, in case you can't see the shared screen, once I press create here, um, might be an idea to, to know where you can see this on your own computers. Have this website up. I press create. And then open all rooms. From your see 
Okay.
Close all rooms. Hello. Anthony, Patrick. Yep, can hear you. Hello. Hi. What happened to the breakout groups? I started counting down and saying that it was ending. Yeah. Uh, what what started counting down and saying it was ending? Oh, it was saying that the breakout room was ending in about fifty seconds, and then you could leave now. Okay. And was, did you have six people you were talking to? Yeah. Yeah, we are talking about the third question because we're in room three. Uh, the reason why we came back was because generally when the countdown for break, breakout rooms ends, it usually means that you've caught us back to the main room. Yeah. Yes, I did. But um, on the old, old system with D2L, I could visit each room and hear what you were talking about. But with Zoom, I didn't know what, what was happening in the groups. I'm just, I, I sent out messages on the text chat group and no answer. So I no, didn't. I, did, we didn't, I didn't get them. I didn't see them, but. Yeah. I could hear them pop up, but couldn't. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I saw the messages pop up, but I couldn't actually respond to any of them. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see them, sorry. Okay. I wonder if that ability to visit the rooms, is that just a feature of the Blackboard Collaborate? Yes. Like, yeah. yes but from what I can tell, there's only three of you still here. Oh. Uh, I've got a lot more than three. Yeah, there's 19 participants. Oh, good. Yeah. Ah, right. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, so... Group one, um, one of the, the first message I sent out that no one seems to have got was, can you see which group you're in? There was, I've got group one, group two, or room one, room two, room three. So just your question one, two, and three went room one, question one, room two, question two. Um, did you get that message? Did, or how did you work out which questions to answer? Well, we're, I was in group two, it's Belinda, and we we got, we got just um, worked that out on our own, that, group, that that question was for us because we're in group two, and we just started on that. Good. Good. All right. Well, um, Isabel, then, can you tell us, where, did you work out in your group who was going to report back on your discussions? We didn't really work out who would do it, so I'm hoping uh, Kevin or Alec might help me out if I don't do this justice. Yeah, yeah, um, I'll help you out, don't worry. Awesome. <laughs> um, I guess we had a couple of points um, with that we didn't think that the nation state needed to be established before anything else. Um, we weren't really sure what anything else meant, but we assumed that it meant, um, I guess, to function as a democracy, um, but 
we were sort of of the opinion that um, nation states emerge out of a certain kind of set of preconditions that that um, citizens need to realize, like, I guess, collectively identify that they need to protect their own interests and that the state emerges out of that kind of social contract. Um, and then eventually through whether it was like the protection racketeering or war making or um, yeah, whatever that citizen's sort of sense of identity became attached to the state and the administrative function of the state so that um, the nation state emerged. Um, but yeah, I guess it, it the nation state kind of is a is a is a great and grand idea until it becomes legitimized enough to actually exert real tangible force and power. Um, but I have no I know <laughs> that is that clear, but yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, Andrew, so what uh my take on it was that um if you look at a country like France, um before it became a democracy, it was a it was a feudal society where uh, there's like a hierarchy. You have the clerics on the second estate, then you have the aristocracy, and then you have the third estate where it's kind of like the I think it was around more than eighty percent of the population where it's just like peasants, the artisans, the merchants, mm -hmm. and then before and um you can see that uh with all the taxes and stuff that are uh, uh the state of france is slowly uh destabilizing in a sense because uh obviously the king's policies weren't doing anything to help the peasantry and uh, it was what uh, host, uh hassan was saying in the chat group that are uh, you know the development of a nation stays uh it's it's natural it's occurring over time and you can see that in a state like france that uh, it was slowly the the monarchy was slowly crumbling. Therefore, um, to replace that destabilizing uh, factor in uh, France, uh, they decided they they were going to be a republic. You know, they um, you have the at the tennis court they preached that uh, the they had their own declaration. Uh, what they're going to do to make uh, France a democracy and yeah. and uh, and it's the um it's their whole uh, grand idea coming into effect. So if you take the Hobbesian view, mm. Hob the Hobbesian view is illustrated by Afghanistan. The Americans leave, the tribal warlords come back. Yeah, and you have no law and order. Without law and order, you you know. You can't have an import-export industry. Very little works in the in the country. And this is it, remember Hobbes is writing at the end of civil war. Yeah. And so Afghanistan is is a current example of that situation of lawlessness. So the the early liberals, this has to be the first priority, establishing a state. Yeah, I think we were, sorry, if you you know, keep going. Um, we were also thinking a bit about that idea that you can have nationless states and stateless nations and that 
what, what, unless, depending on what you mean by anything else, if you mean like trade and sort of economic growth and development and welfare and well-being and all that kind of stuff, is like a functioning state, then often you do kind of need a national identity attached to that, especially if it's like a really, like if the population is large enough that um, you need to have a sense of trust in like your representatives and that kind of stuff. So yeah. I guess it, it does depend, um, you know, like with decolonization, if that was, was so rapid and there was kind of all these artificial geographic states, which were actually either had multiple different nations and ethnic you know, groups or no real sense of national collective identity. And like either way, you can't really function. Like if you're a nation and you have no administrative capacity, mm. you, don't, you aren't legitimate. But if you're a state and you're just full of different national groups, you can't really um, do anything else because you're just constantly in conflict a bit like yeah well it, it it it's an it's a pretty abstract point but if hobbes hobbes says law and order has to become first because if you don't have that then nothing else is possible but uh later billy bragg argues you have to have all of these that there is no order without justice and fairness you can't just establish order. It can't be the first. You can't have the war, you know, the warlords all, all all gang up together and have one great big gang. There has to be fairness as well, and there has to be equality and well so, solidarity or a sense of nationhood or common ethnic. We're all in this together. Which that that those are the two choices actually. Either you have have everything all at once, or order first. It seems you all all went for the multiple things, everything at once. Well, yeah, um, yeah, but I also was kind of drawn to the Tilly's idea that the state does kind of construct the nation and attach mm. that nation to itself to protect itself. It's like with World War II, all that propaganda about, you know, protecting your country and your family and your brothers and sisters. It's like the state is very active in that. In that. And even like the French Revolution is like, that was quite a nationalizing kind of identity producing. So, so there's, there's contrary assumptions about human nature. Hobbes' idea is a static human nature, and so you have this preference list, security first, security has to be the number one, liberty second, equality later, and solidarity an afterthought or down the track when we can afford it. Uh, for the constructivists and, and um, developmental Republicans, developmental liberals, you have to do everything at the same time. It all interacts all the way along from the very beginning. You have to do everything at once in, in an integrated way. So that, I mean, that's a fairly um, philosophical, abstract sort of question. Um, I hope you all enjoyed that little uh, exercise. Can we hear from group two?
on question two. That Belinda, Emma, Jack, Max, Nady, and Riley. Are you here? I can see Belinda is here. Uh, yeah, I can um, uh, be a spokesperson, I guess, if you like. Emma did a lot of the reading. Emma, do you want to, to read out some of your points? Or do you want me to? Or yeah, Riley? I can. Um, uh, so I just kind of had between protective democracy and developmental democracy, I had um, uh, kind of three points each in terms of more more of a contrasting and comparison between the two. Um, but I guess you could say strengths and weaknesses. So protective democracy um, does not aim to maximise citizen involvement, whereas developmental democracy does aim to maximise citizen involvement. Um, yes. Uh, in terms of state... Uh, so the states, so for, sorry, for protective democracy, our state tolerates freedom of thought, publication and association. And for developmental democracy, the state actively promotes freedom of thought, feeling, discussion mm -hmm. uh, and association. So in that sense, yeah, there's a kind of toleration versus actively promoting. Mm -hmm. uh, for protective democracy... Uh, intentionally divided and limited to function for state power and the developmental democracy uh, development of sufficient capacity to intentionally expand. And then I just had um, one more for protective democracy, citizens and the property protected for from arbitrary treatment by the state. Uh, yeah, I don't know if Belinda wants to expand on. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just wanted to say that with those, I mean, they are, they are, there are quite, um, so and they seem subtle, but they're, to me, they are quite. There is quite a bit of difference, and to me, um, it seems like uh, uh, protective democracy. So the first, sorry, the first one we were looking at um, is more of the passive. Of 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 those, whereas de, um, developmental democracy is definitely more of a sort of hands-on approach, particularly um, because it aims to maximise participation and really encourage um, freedom of thought, that sort of thing. So to me, the difference is protective democracy is passive, and developmental is a bit more well, it's definitely more active. Mm. Very much so. Um. All I, all I can add is the developmental idea comes from Socrates, the, the, the full life. Uh, we are political animals, as Aristotle said, because we, we, want, or we, we want to live our life with other people. We are social beings. We are political beings. We are social beings. And the more we interact with others, um, find out what the issues are around in the community around us. Th this is living the real life. This is living the good life. The, the, a full life is, is lived with others rather than each person looking after their own private business and getting ahead, making money for, the, for themselves and their family. 
that's a half-life on the Socratic uh, ideal of Athenian participatory democracy. And if you look at um, John Stuart Mill, um, page 92 of our text held, um, he was a, a, a very big ad advocate for not just democracy, but representative government. Um, and so I guess he was, he was the more champion reading between the lines of um, the more, the non-Socrates type. So the, so the um, developmental participation. So that's what I'm sort of, Leaning from that reading, um, well, I, it's sort of a mix. Okay. So social liberalism wants accepts that we are social beings or political beings. We we want to live and work with other people. Um. But but it accepts. The idea that the modern nation state needs representation. We can't all participate in everything. Um, this is why he wanted uh, plural voting. Everyone gets a vote. Everyone gets the opportunity to develop and learn, but uh, some people should have more votes than others. <laughs> so he's, he's sort of like a fence sitter then to you? Yes, yes. Okay. He um, accepts procedures. Um, perhaps you could say that protective liberalism is necessary, but not sufficient. It, it's a minimum, but but the full life needs more opportunities. We need we need to develop as people, and we do that best collectively. And could, is, is that something that you could argue for in your um, essay, in the, in the first essay, like that you could reach, reach a compromise or would you, are you expecting us to go one way or the other? No, no, that's, that is a, I mean, if you have two different camps, there's three options. One camp is better than the other. The other is better than the first. Yeah. Uh, both of them are hopeless. We need a whole new thing or... Both of them have good parts and we need a bit of, so there's four positions, logical arguments you can make. Yes, compromise is one of those, certainly, is an argument you can take. Um, let's move on to group three. Thank you for that. Did Riley have anything to say? Sorry, are you okay with what we've given there? Riley was taking some notes for us. Is that okay with you? I mean, yeah, I don't have too much to add rather than like in terms of like the developmental democracy, um, like it's uh, fence sitting in a way because it's he wants, you know, he, he was sort of railing against the establishment, which um, sought to resist change. But then he was also upholding the establishment at the same time by not wanting uh, the mob to get too much power and therefore take away his property rights, which I thought was interesting. Yes, that's where the compromise is. Keeping property, but also keeping society. Yeah, social liberalism is, is sort of an in-between. Property is very important. Um, thank you. These are two really good discussions. 
Can we move on to group three? Bethany, Olivia, Patrick, Reggie, Renia, Renia, and Sam. Any of those names here? Yeah. Renia. I'm happy to talk about it if no one else wants to. Olivia, yes. We found it reasonably difficult. Um, it wasn't helped by the fact that we hadn't really done the extended reading. But from what we could uh, just like kind of gather from skin reading night and going over it, um, sort of the question pushes us in the direction of a constructivist theory. Um, and so if we were to take that approach, kind of the answer to the question would be yes, that did emerge gradually as a result of centralised and monopolised power specifically. Um, we discussed this, that kind of in the readings, it's argued that sort of the first significant steps towards a nation state was when um, the monarchies, specifically obviously in that time period, governments were monarchies, sought to monopolise violence um, in their countries and regions, mm. um, which didn't. And then I can't, I can't remember who made the point, but they noted that um, another form of monopolizing that violence came in the form of war. And there's an interesting point that every time nation states did go to war, tended to be fewer nation states that left that war than came in. So colonization was another way of kind of centralizing and monopolizing power and violence. Yeah. That was the nation state. Uh -huh. um, spoke about some other things like the difference um, if we took another approach if it would be as explanatory for how the nation state formed we didn't, I don't think we ever really came up with a set answer but the discussions was that it wasn't quite as explanatory for the, na the nation state's development as um, the constructivist theory or approach. Um, if anyone else in the group has anything else that they can remember that we spoke about, it's kind of all I've got down. Uh, we kind of also compared it to our Hobbes's social contract, like whether constructivism is the only way to build a state. So we kind of talked about how um, perhaps law and order was necessary for getting these things developed in the first place to get this democracy. Hmm. That was the point of the Afghan example. Just a recent nation state with a lot of lot of uh, violence. Um, I wanted to ask what your opinion on um, was on whether like it was primarily that kind of promotion of capitalist kind of like whether there was like the economic incentive was the real primary incentive behind even like war making and stuff which then I guess preceded you know the state and um and then the nation state like is it all to do with just expanding modes of production and profit and trying to right. you know, it's a very penetrating question, very interesting question. Um, 
I've only got five minutes left of the hour. The very short answer is that Charles Tilly is Weberian rather than Marxist. Max Weber, um, a sociologist, a great admirer of Marx, but thought it was too simple to think that economics, the basic drives of shelter, food, and primary needs in the economy drives everything. Uh, Marx's sense of politics was pretty thin, really. Weber's had a, Weber had a much stronger sense of bureaucracy, rules, and modern, the modern life, and a much stronger sense of democracy. Now, the critics, including Tilly, who's a neo-Weberian, pointed out that Weber was, he might have been good on politics and good at the relationship between politics and economics, but he had a pretty poor sense of history. How did it come about? How did, the, how did the state arise? It's not just a matter of a definition and the bureaucracy and how it works. It's where did it come from? So the answer to your question is no. It's not really about the economy. It's not really about raising the promoting the capitalist enterprises that can pay the taxes, that can pay the standing army. Um, it was all of them together. They went hand in glove. It wasn't one before the other. Marx was actually a strong believer in Hobbes. He advocated Hobbes ahead of uh, Locke. Locke was part of liberalism, whereas Hobbes was much more realistic about how power works. Uh, does that answer your question? Yes, it's beginning to. <laughs> Thank you. I hope, I hope I haven't made things more confusing. I, I, I fully appreciate you struggling with that first question. Um, I'm always anxious about bringing in too many materials, too many ideas and complicating everything for everybody. Um, but, well, you're grown-ups. I mean, this, this is what is going on. This is what the research is about. I'm trying to give you background to help you to put things in context. Okay, this is excellent. Um, I'm really happy with how, how energetically you've all engaged with this. It's such a relief that the breakout sessions did actually work, um, as far as I can see. Um, this has all been recorded. You can go, I believe the breakout sessions were also recorded. If anyone wants to go back and listen to anything that somebody said and you want to recall that and the off-campus students can also listen to all of this and hopefully they can get something out of that and as a shout out to the off-campus students listening to this recording 
the um, Tuesday night one hour seminar between six and seven, we'll repeat the breakout sessions. That's when we talk. So please, uh, I hope you've already listened to the lecture and now on Tuesday night, uh, you too can um, join in conversation with other people and, and learn from hearing yourself interact with others. So obviously I'm taking up the developmental idea for teaching. Uh, I subscribe to constructivism in pedagogy, which many of you might know is, is uh, pretty prominent in, in education. Most, most pedagogues these days are constructivists. Uh, so before we wrap up, is there anybody has any questions? Is everything straightforward? Um, Andrew, I've, it's Belinda here. I've just got um, a quick question, especially on the back of today, where we were looking at so many different sort of schools of thoughts. You know, we had Mill and earlier you were talking about um, Montesquieu and all lots of ones. How many would be the expectation for our essay to, to be comparing and contrasting? And uh, um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot in there with the readings. Uh, Bentham and John Stuart Mill are the primary uh, father figures, leading thinkers for thinking about liberal democracy today. You don't really need to go into um, Hobbes and Locke, um, let alone anything earlier. Uh, that's a uh, background context. Democracy is older than the industrial era. Uh, it does go back to the beginning of the nation state, the 1600s. But um, what's relevant in the books today, what's relevant for you to appreciate the strengths and weaknesses of, is a liberal democracy in itself, per se. Um, I think um, the uh, Raymond Williams' essay about keywords, his essay on democracy, puts things into proportion quite well. Uh, you can see the importance of Bentham and Mill, John Stuart Mill. Uh, so that's one way of reinforcing what I'm, the, my message here. more succinct than David Held. People do like David Held spelling things out <laughs> in more detail. It's up to you. It's just that Held um, talks about a lot of theory and not a lot of you know scholars, that's all. He does. If that's what you want, he's the person to go to. If you want this is the brief version, um, Raymond, Raymond Williams is pretty good. Ben Isakhan's essay is a pretty snappy, quick sort of run through 
of the history of thought about democracy in the context of Orientalism. So his agenda for going through this history of ideas is to think about what this means for the Middle East and the East versus West simplifications at the Orient and the Occident. The Orient is the East, the Occident is the West. Um, it's de facto a form of rationale for racism that the West is best. Everything started with Athens and so on. That's it. I, I would recommend that as a brief, pointed review of all these authors, the same literature, the history of democracy. Um, not quite as succinct as Raymond Williams, but close. Okay, time to wrap up and we'll do it all again next week. Thank you, bye. And uh, as always, I will remain online until everyone signs off. Cheers, see everyone. Thank you. If anyone has a question you want to ask, just hang, hang around, I'll be here. So, Belinda, I think you're the last one. Oh, sorry, um, Andrew. I was in the middle of I'm in the middle of two Zooms, <laughs> but while I've got you, I thought I'd actually logged logged off. While I've got you, and it might be a good question to pose on the forum so everyone can understand it. Um, I was getting a bit confused with republicanism. Is that a, a form of liberal democracy? That's a form of republican democracy. So, is that expected to be discussed in our? Okay, so we can leave that part out. If if I'm doing I'm doing um, liberal democracy versus social democracy, I wouldn't need to include repub like that second chapter of health then. No, so some people may want to compare republican democracy and liberal democracy. Some people. No, it wasn't it wasn't the road I was going to go down. It was specifically for liberal versus social. Sure, that, I think that's pretty pertinent. Others might want to look at Republican versus Liberal, Republican versus. Ah, uh, okay. I was getting I was getting quite confused with it. With um, okay, all right, that makes sense. Thank you. It because Republicanism emphasises the common good. There's a some sense of collective. Ah, oh, okay. Bye.